0: Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country.
1: We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system.
0: At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice
1: and what we actually do on the ground.
0: We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today.
1: So that everyone walks away better informed.
0: Join us for Measured Justice.
2: This is Ashley Otto. Director of the Academy for Justice at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and you're listening to Measured Justice. This episode on the Arizona Supreme Court's recent decision on jury selection will be introduced by my co-host, Eric Luna, the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law and founder of the Academy for
0: Justice.
2: You can find his bio on our website.
0: Thank you, Ashley. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at the Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law that aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the Arizona Supreme Court's recent decision to eliminate the ability of lawyers to reject potential jurors without giving a reason, a practice known as a peremptory strike. The court's new rule will take effect in 2022. To talk about the background of this major change in Arizona criminal justice, we'll hear from three leading scholars who've studied juries and jury selection to help us understand the background and foreground of this groundbreaking action. We're fortunate to be joined today by Belina Beattie, Professor of Law and Deputy Director of the Academy for Justice here at the Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Alexis Hogue, Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School in New York City and Jessica Salerno, Professor in the Social and Behavioral Sciences Division of the New College of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at Arizona State University. You can find their full biographies on our website, academyforjustice.org. Thank you all for joining us today. Let's uh, let's begin with you, Professor Beattie. Can you provide us some background on this uh, important issue for jury trials in America? What are the logistics of jury selection? And how was this practice altered by the US Supreme Court's 1986 decision in Batson versus Kentucky?
1: Well, good morning, and those are great questions. Uh, Batson versus Kentucky is a Supreme Court decision from 1986, as you said, uh, where the court was concerned about racism against jurors. And this is because, as you also noted, prosecutors and defense attorneys can strike people from a jury without giving a reason. These are what you call peremptory challenges. So the Supreme Court made a test in Batson so that a party could object to a juror being removed from a jury if they think the removal or strike, as it's called, was based on race, ethnicity, or ultimately gender as well. So the attorney who struck the juror then will respond to the subjective and they'll give their reason for striking the juror. As long as that reason is race neutral or gender neutral, then the juror is dismissed and the case continues. So if it's a facially neutral reason, the judge usually decides there was no purposeful discrimination. Now, this result... Naturally encourages every attorney to give a race neutral reason for striking a juror. Uh, So some facially neutral and acceptable reasons we've seen in Arizona are uh, striking an Asian American juror because she might not be able to understand English or slang terminology. That's what the prosecutor said, even though the juror spoke English and did not need a translator. Another example is striking a black juror who did not make eye contact and quote, did not seem to care. Uh, striking a Hispanic juror who the prosecutor called, quote, a slob who sleeps all day and takes tickets for a couple of hours at the movie theater, end quote. Another example is striking a Hispanic juror for being too quiet and working as a UPS driver, which the prosecutor said, quote, may be associated with an increased likelihood of driving under the influence, end quote. All of these were facially neutral, they were acceptable reasons to strike the jurors. So ultimately, Batson is a Supreme Court decision that allows people of color to be struck from juries unless there is proven intent to discriminate. But at the time of the Batson decision, Justice Thurgood Marshall, who concurred in the decision, proposed eliminating peremptory challenges altogether. That would mean every time a juror is struck, the attorney has to give a reason for it. And now, 35 years later, the Arizona Supreme Court is eliminating peremptory challenges. They're taking up the call. Uh, And Arizona is the first state to do so. Uh, So that's where we're at right now with Arizona. And nationally, we're seeing a number of states that are reevaluating the Batson test and how to protect jurors of color from being struck based on racism.
2: Thank you, P- Professor Beatty. Let's now turn to Professor Ho, who has studied and written on U.S. Supreme Court jurisprudence on discriminatory jury strikes. Since Batson, the Supreme Court has issued a series of cases like Snyder v. Louisiana, Flowers v. Mississippi, Miller L. v. Dretke, and Foster v. Chapman. What changed with these cases, and why do Batson-related issues keep appearing before the Supreme Court?
3: Thank you, Ashley. Um, Professor Beattie has really outlined Batson versus Kentucky and why this was such an issue in uh, criminal. It also applies to civil trials, but particularly in criminal trials. It really casts a doubt over the public's confidence in criminal adjudication. And what we've seen in all of the cases that you mentioned after Batson is the Supreme Court carefully sort of with a quarter turn refining uh, the standard, that three-part test that Professor Beattie outlined for us in Batson. And immediately after Batson, there wasn't really a lot of relief granted. I practiced for a number of years in the state of Tennessee doing post-conviction appeals and death penalty cases. um, And until just a few years ago, Tennessee had never granted relief on appeal to somebody raising a Batson challenge. And so over over the last 35 years, the US Supreme Court first um, with an early case Uh, Powers versus Ohio recognized, okay, well, white defendants, not just Black defendants, can raise a Batson challenge. That was an open question. It came about five years later. Um, And then over the years, this idea that the district attorneys can also raise what's called sort of a reverse Batson challenge against defense counsel if they're removing jurors, prospective jurors based on race. Some of the U.S. courts of appeals have explicitly held that keeping a token Black person, a token woman, a token person of color on a jury cannot disprove or cure discrimination, because it really is an analysis vis-a-vis each individual perspective juror. And the cases that you uh, mentioned that have come out more recently, Miller L., which was decided in 2005, was from, originated from Texas. And there was a really extensive study conducted in Dallas, Texas, Dallas County, that showed that prosecutors were disproportionately using preemptory strikes to remove Black jurors and also Latino jurors. And what was really striking about that case is that the the Supreme Court recognized that a defendant can rely on all relevant circumstances to make out that first prong of intentional discrimination. So it allowed defendants to uh, look at a prosecution office's strike rate. It allowed a defendant to point to a specific prosecutor's strike rate, perhaps in other cases, to help build the case for whether or not that prosecutor was discriminating based on race in their case. And so that ended up being a really powerful tool for defendants. Uh, Snyder versus Louisiana really emphasized, and this didn't change the law, it emphasized that a single discriminatory strike against one juror is enough to invalidate the trial and that is enough to be unlawful. More recently, I think we've heard about Foster versus Chapman uh, and also um, the Flowers case, Flowers versus Mississippi. These were older death penalty cases. Foster was tried in the late 1980s. Flowers, again, that's a, a many decades old case. And those are instances where you had prosecutors intentionally discriminating based on race in jury selection. Uh, the court in Foster said just really the sheer number of references that the DA made to race in their notes. Um, they, had, they had handwritten notations indicating that they, if they had to accept one of the Black jurors, maybe this was the best of the, the prospective Black jurors. And the court also uh, refined its analysis by uh, concluding that strikes that are motivated in substantial part by discriminatory intent can violate the 14th Amendment. So it didn't have to necessarily be the only reason, uh, but a substantial reason. And Foster versus Mississippi, I mean, you can't make these facts up. Um, And and this was obviously the topic of of another podcast series, Uh, but the the prosecutor, Doug Evans, he had used, um, I wanna say 41 of 42 strikes against potential Black jurors over the course of six trials. Uh, and just to repeat that, 41 of 42 Black jurors removed. And they found that in that, that office, it was Winona, uh, Mississippi, that the strike rate uh, was about four times 0.4 higher vis-a-vis Black uh, potential jurors than white. So these are this is really striking evidence. And, and what the number of cases that goes before the U.S. Supreme Court shows is that this is really still an ongoing problem um, nationally, at the federal level, in state and in criminal trials.
0: Well, thanks to Professor Beatty and Professor Hogue, we have a good picture of the law. Let's turn to Professor Salerno to discuss uh, what we know about jury strikes in Arizona as an empirical matter. The Arizona rule proposals uh, found that, quote, Arizona, like other American jurisdictions, faces persistent problems with unlawful discrimination on the basis of race, gender, religion, and other impermissible classifications in jury selection. Data from the Administrative Office of the Courts showed that in Arizona criminal cases, African-American jurors were unrepresented by 16 percent, Native American jurors were underrepresented by 51 percent and Hispanic jurors were underrepresented by 21% in the veneer. Professor Salerno, how does this data square with what we see nationally? And why hasn't Batson been effective at combating unlawful discrimination?
4: Yes, so unfortunately, this is definitely not a specific Arizona problem. Uh, This is definitely a national problem. So we see similar patterns in data across the country. There have been a lot of very impressive large scale studies that have been conducted in lots of different states, in the Midwest, in the South, um, all over, where um, researchers will collect large amounts of data spanning years where they'll collect data on thousands of cases. They'll look at uh, who was seated on the jury, the percentage of different races in the population. And um, and the point of these studies is to, similar to the Arizona data, try to determine whether minority uh, racial minorities are underrepresented relative to what we would expect given their presence in the population. And uh, across the country and all these different studies, a very consistent pattern has showed up, which is that even though it's post Batson and we have the Batson rule in place, attorneys continue to use peremptory strikes to exclude uh, racial minorities significantly more than white potential jurors and at rates that far exceed the um, that racial group's proportion in the population. So it's not just that they're striking black or other racial minority jurors more than white jurors, but at much, much higher rates than what you would expect given how often they... Um, they occur in the population. So uh, these data also show that these tend to be in cases most often when um, there are black defendants and prosecutors are typically um, most commonly the ones who are striking black jurors. Uh, But that's not always the case. We do have, as uh, Professor Hogue pointed out, uh, this can also happen from defense attorneys. And I think, uh, you know, it's interesting, just in the last month, we've had two very high profile cases here in our country where there are racial issues at their core. So the Rittenhouse case, the Ahmaud Arbery case, Uh, And despite the fact that there are very, you know, intense racial issues at their core, we have juries that uh, were seated that are almost almost entirely white. So both juries, 11 of the jurors were white and there was one uh, token black (laughs) juror, as uh, Professor Hoke mentioned. Um, And so, you know, regardless of defense or um, prosecutors, the net effect here is that. Uh, when there are black defendants, or when there are white defendants whose crimes are um, potentially racially motivated, those decisions are being made by juries who end up being mostly white. And the data um, from from research studies show that this is a pervasive national um, problem. For example, in the Ahmad Arbery case, uh, despite that county being uh, almost a third black, um, you know, they, we had only one black juror um, on that jury. So. And this, of course, has a lot of negative consequences for both the quality of deliberations and also the perceived legitimacy of our system. We've had a lot of articles written just in the last week, couple of weeks, about um, problems with this. So, as for your second question, uh, so why, you know, why are we still seeing this problem, um, despite Batson? Um, that was clearly designed to try to prevent this. Um, I would say that there are several problems with Batson, um, but, you know, I think three kind of main problems. And I think that um, the big problem was highlighted really well in the Ahmad Arbery case a couple of weeks ago. We had a situation where we had only one black juror and we actually had the judge explicitly saying on the record that he did think that there was, um, quote, intentional discrimination going on during jury selection and that he recognized there were racial overtones and that, you know, almost all but one of the African-American jurors were excused through peremptory strikes, he argued that that didn't mean that he had the authority to reseat them because his hands were tied because legally the attorneys weren't actually doing anything wrong. They were operating within the rules, uh, which of course suggests that perhaps the Batson rule is you know, broken um, in some ways. So the first big problem that I see um, why Batson is not effective is that Even if attorneys are knowingly discriminatory, even if they know they're striking Black jurors purposefully, it's incredibly easy to come up with race-neutral justifications. We have lots of data and studies showing that overall, Black jurors are being struck disproportionately, but all of the attorneys are able to come up with racially-neutral justifications. And the other half of that problem is that these race-neutral justifications are completely unfalsifiable. It's it's almost impossible to prove that they're basing their decisions on race, um, unless, as as uh, Professor Hope pointed out, they have taken explicit notes, or there's some hard proof. It's really hard um, to prove that someone was basing their peremptory strike on race, and that's revealed in um, there are studies showing that when they uh, look into trial and appellate court decisions, um, as, as we've already kind of mentioned, um, the bats and challenges are almost always rejected. Um, so 85, roughly about 85 percent of um, all of the bats and challenges uh, were rejected in that in that data set. I think the second problem is that the Batson rule that minimally just requires attorneys to provide a race neutral justification doesn't account for, first of all, unconscious racial biases. Um, So we have decades of psychological science that demonstrate that people often have very little insight into what drives their behavior. But even if that's the case, can offer very compelling but inaccurate explanations for their behavior. Um, So, you know, there's going to be a lot of unconscious racial bias um, happening, which the Batson rule really doesn't address. And also it doesn't account for structural racism. Um, A lot of times attorneys are striking uh, black jurors for things that aren't race per se, but are factors that are highly correlated with race, such as having a history of bad interactions with law enforcement or living in a high crime neighborhood, Um, And, you know, a couple of states, Washington and California, have very recently tried to attempt to account for this by um, coming up with a list of what they call, quote, presumed invalid justifications for striking a juror that historically have been associated with discrimination in jury selection. And what they're doing is they're um, they're suggesting that um, they can't use those reasons unless they can provide clear and convincing evidence that they aren't based on race. So they're kind of shifting the burden from proving that they are based on race to proving that they aren't. Um, so, again, things like distrust of police and living in high crime neighborhoods. So, the Batson rule, uh, you know, again, really doesn't account for these structural um, racism. Um, factors which lead, if, if people are, so even though they aren't technically based on race, if we're striking everybody who's had a bad interaction with law enforcement or lives in a high crime neighborhood, we're going to be striking um, Black jurors at, at much higher and disproportionate rates. And the last problem I would say I would briefly mention with Batson is that it doesn't account for the earlier phases of jury selection that also disproportionately exclude Black jurors. Um, so, you know, the first step is just showing up for jury in the first place. Um, and often jurors are excused for hardship, such as financial hardship, childcare issues, things like that. And the data show that um, these factors disproportionately affect jurors of color. So at the first stage, we have less potential jurors showing up. Um, in these racial minority groups in the first place. Um, And then the second phase, the attorneys can challenge jurors for cause. So when they do have a reason, that they argue that the judge can accept or not. And several studies have found that actually there are even more pronounced racial disparities in challenges for cause than in peremptory challenges. There was one study that had very um, disturbing data where they found that black jurors were challenged for cause 181% more than would be expected given their prevalence in the population, which is pretty astounding. But then also, in contrast, white jurors were challenged at half the rate that would be expected. So so we're seeing kind of this leaky pipeline kind of thing where we lose jurors of of color just in the hardship challenges and the challenges for cause. So once we get to the use of peremptory challenges, there are so few black jurors left that it's easy to basically almost wipe them out entirely. I would say that, um, you know, and people have voiced a lot of different concerns about Batson, but I think those are... the the main ones that I see. Thank you so much,
2: Professor Salerno. That was very helpful in understanding the data and the problems with Batson. Let's turn now to Professor Beattie. You were an appointed member of the Arizona Bar Association's Working Group from 2020 to
1: 2021.
2: Can you tell us a bit about your experience and what do you think the impact will be from the Arizona Supreme Court's rule change?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I'm so glad professors Salerno and Hoag laid out the multiple, multiple problems with uh, Batson and with racial bias, uh, particularly among juries and with our our jury system. Uh, But for the the public at large, really, uh, it was George Floyd's murder that prompted uh, a lot of actors within our judicial systems nationally to Uh, Look at addressing eliminating bias in our legal system. Um, So in the wake of George Floyd's murder, uh, Supreme Courts or the chief justices of 24 states and the District of Columbia all issued statements emphasizing that they play a crucial role as courts to eliminating bias. Uh, And in Arizona, the Arizona Bar Association tasked a Batson working group with changing the Batson test in order to protect people from being struck from a jury due to bias. Uh, So everything that Professors Salerno and Hoag uh, laid out as problems, uh, this working group was tasked with Considering and really trying to address. And this working group was statewide and uh, includes civil attorneys, because as Professor Hoag pointed out, Batson applies in civil and criminal cases. Uh, it included judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, and academics. Uh, So our working group created a rule that followed the legislation and the rules passed in California and Washington State that were previously referenced. Uh, And again, other states across the United States are looking at uh, reforming and changing their Batson rules. Our proposed rule adopted an objective observer test Uh, meaning uh, it would be what would an objective observer believe uh, and whether that objective observer believed that race was the reason behind the strike. Uh, It also uh, found certain reasons presumptively invalid uh, that were historically associated with discrimination, as Professor Salerno pointed out. Uh, So, for example, again, uh, the reason to strike uh, someone can't be that the juror lives in what is called a, quote, high crime neighborhood end quote, Uh, or it can't be that they distrust law enforcement or have had a negative interaction with law enforcement um, or something as simple as they have a child outside of marriage. Those reasons are or would have been presumptively invalid. So the proposed rule really tracked Washington State Rule 37 and California Bill 3070, except that it also protected people based on sexual orientation, religious affiliation and disability. At the same time that this working group was crafting this rule, uh, two Court of Appeals judges, Judges Swan and McMurdy, proposed a rule to just completely eliminate peremptory challenges, completely, in both civil and in criminal cases. Judge Swan was on the working group, uh, so we had a number of discussions about this. And both proposals went up to the Arizona Supreme Court at the same time for them to make their decision on how they were going to address the problems in the Batson test. So while the Arizona Supreme Court was considering which way to go, uh, I did a couple of presentations to judges about uh, the proposed rules. And I kept hearing from judges that they preferred eliminating peremptory challenges because in their opinions, it was simpler, it seemed more workable, uh, and that was where they were leaning. And ultimately, the Arizona Supreme Court agreed. And they decided to eliminate peremptory challenges in Arizona starting January 2022. Uh, And as far as the impact, I do think judges are receptive to this rule change because they had to limit the number of peremptory challenges that were permitted during COVID in order to keep the size of the jury pool down. So they were already limited to three peremptory challenges uh, per side, and they had already acclimated to this idea of eliminating peremptory challenges. Uh, and the hope is that the impact will be that we will see more diverse juries.
0: Thank you, Professor Beattie. Uh, let's now talk about how peremptory challenges are being reconsidered across the country. Uh, Professor Hope, can you tell us a little bit about what jury selection reform uh, is going on nationally and uh, what these reforms look like?
3: Yes, I, I wish I could say that um, jury selection reform uh, looks as great as it does in Arizona. Um, Arizona is really a leader in this field. Um, I think it was Professor Beatty that, that mentioned, you know, back in 1986, when um, the Supreme Court decided Batson versus Kentucky, Justice Marshall then, suggested that the way to get rid of racial discrimination and jury selection was to to get rid of peremptory strikes and that as long as peremptory challenges were around uh, it would it it would allow, Advocates, counselors, lawyers to remove jurors based on on bias, and so I wish that what what is happening in Arizona would happen across the country. Um, but there is there is hope, and I think Arizona is really a leader, and that other states will soon begin to follow suit. And I know this has come up a little bit already, uh, but California and Connecticut have both uh, essentially identified, uh, or rather, California has identified areas. Um, that are presumptively invalid uh, in terms of that second prong of the Batson versus Kentucky analysis, where the challenge party has to then present some sort of race-neutral, gender-neutral reason for their strike. And so in in Connecticut, and I know um, Professor Salerno has identified some of these, this idea that somebody distrust law enforcement or uh, lives in a certain neighborhood or perhaps has a child outside of, of marriage, uh, these would be presumptively invalid reasons. And then uh, the party would have to further explain. And then in California, it's actually a little bit more a broader reform. So they have recently passed the Racial Justice Act which prohibits the use of race or ethnicity in convictions or sentences, sentencing, and so a challenger uh, can identify some aspect of racial discrimination anywhere in their case. And if that happened to be at jury selection, uh, then that could be a means of obtaining relief in post-conviction. State versus Gregory was a really exciting case that the Washington Supreme Court decided in 2018, analyzing their own state constitution. And they ruled that their death penalty was unconstitutional because it was was arbitrary and it uh, was racially discriminatory. And in the course of deciding that case, Washington state uh, took a hard look at at, uh, jury selection in their state and concluded that people of color were being removed at disproportionately high rates from juries. And so they uh, created, I want to say it's a it's a state Supreme Court rule that that says purposeful discrimination is not required when a challenging party is raising racial discrimination in jury selection. And that can be a big lift uh, to point the finger at an actor and say, ah, they intentionally uh, discriminated against this this juror based on race. And so it it sort of lowers the the burden that, that BATS and otherwise required. And again, in Washington state, much like Connecticut, They've identified some reasons that are presumptively invalid, and they very much uh, look like what Connecticut has identified this idea of, of people who have had contact with the criminal legal system, again, have expressed distrust of law enforcement, have criminal convictions, family members with criminal convictions, because we have found structurally, as Professor Salerno identified, that that tends to disproportionately impact people of color. Uh, New Jersey is the latest state that called for a statewide study, and that was just this year. Um, And so my hope is that we'll begin to see the sort of reforms that we've seen in Washington, Connecticut, California, once New Jersey has gone through this exercise. Uh, North Carolina uh, is a state that had a racial justice act. So it's what California now has. And it existed for a small window of time. They had a relatively progressive state legislature that passed the Racial Justice Act prohibiting racial discrimination in criminal cases. And then uh, once they had a new sort of state elected officials, they repealed that act. And so there's been some interesting litigation before the North Carolina Supreme Court determining uh, whether or not the people who who raise challenges during that small window of time with the Racial Justice Act uh, can still obtain relief. And one of the, um, the facts that came out of that litigation was this intensive study conducted on jury selection in North Carolina. Fantastic professors uh, at Michigan State, Barbara O'Brien, Catherine Grosso, uh, they determined that district attorneys there struck eligible Black juries at more than twice the rate of white juries. And so we don't quite have reform just yet in North Carolina, but this research exists and lawmakers are paying attention. I also want to point out The fantastic work that the Equal Justice Initiative continues to do in this arena and and in other related arenas on racial discrimination in the criminal legal system. They first published a report in 2010 identifying the um, high rates of racial discrimination, jury selection, largely in the South, that you had predominantly Black communities in which um, you would still end up with all white juries. Uh, Both professors Beattie and, and Salerno have have discussed the problem, not just with jury selection, but the lack of representation in the jury pool. So that's more of an upstream sort of analysis. So EJI has discussed that. They also had a report that came out. I want to say it was just in 2021 or 2020, updating their findings, again, concluding how pervasive racial discrimination is in jury selection. Um, And then California, the the Berkeley Law School Death Penalty Clinic issued a fantastic report called Whitewashing the Jury Box um, that looks specifically at what's been going on in California. And I think that was directly related then to the reforms that we're seeing out of California with the Racial Justice Act. And so uh, this relationship between advocates, scholars, post-conviction attorneys is really integral in elevating this issue.
2: Thank you, Professor Hoag. Um, I'd like to turn now to Professors Salerno and Bea. Uh, You both received grants to collect data in 2021 to help us understand the impact on jury composition from the court's rule change. Can you tell us a little bit about this work? What have you found so far?
4: Yeah, well, we're actually in uh, very early phases of this. Um, So (laughs) right after the decision was made a couple of months ago, there was a big scramble in the research community and among those of us at ASU to say, oh wow, we ha- really have to capture this. We have to collect data on this. Um, you know, All the other states c- contemplating this kind of step are going to be watching us. So uh, what can we do to, to try and um, make sure that we're in a-, a place where we can collect data on this? So yeah, Valena and I, and we also have some colleagues in the uh, School of Criminology and Criminal Justice, uh, Cassia Spahn, mm-hmm. Shion, and Hank Fradella. Um, so that's our research team, which is nice. We kind of span a lot of disciplines, you know, psychology, law, criminology, um, and all that. So uh, we got to- together and we uh, applied for some funding. Uh, We're actually at, um, like I said, a very early stage. So the National Science Foundation has a very uh, special grant program there called a Rapid Grant. Um, Typically when you apply for these big grants, you're waiting six months for a review process and then another few months to get the actual funding. And of course our rule change is happening in January. So uh, the the Rapid Grant program kind of fast tracks that and um, goes through a quicker review process. So we are at the final stages of that and are very excited. So we've been working with the Arizona courts in Pima and Maricopa County um, who have been wonderful. uh, really op- not only open to sharing data with us, but um, actually really, really enthusiastic about the project, which has been wonderful. And uh, basically our goal is we have a few different um, aims in our research project. The, the most um, perhaps obvious one is we're collecting data on racial composition of juries um, before the change. And then we're going to be collecting data in 2022 um, on racial um, composition of the juries after the rule change. Uh, and we're going to get a little more Nuanced and granular than that, we're going to. Fortunately, the Arizona courts in Maricopa and Pima collect data on each stage of the jury selection process. So we'll have the racial composition of the people who showed up to jury selection, the percentage of each minority group who were challenged for hardship for cause. By um, we have, of course, in the pre data, we have the peremptory challenge. Um, Compositions as well, so we'll be able to hopefully see if there's a significant shift um, that you know we're all sort of hoping for with this change, which is that we'll have a higher percentage of racial minorities on our juries after the rule change compared to before the rule change. Uh, And we're also hoping to get at some of these other issues that have been discussed today about how the rule change might, for example change uh, attorneys' strategies during jury selection. Are we, for example, going to suddenly see that they spend a lot more time arguing for cause after the change, before the change? And do they do that more so for jurors of color, for example, um, and things like that. We're also gonna be conducting some interviews with attorneys and judges after the rule change to get their opinion on um, what they see as, as um, potential changes or impacts as it happens. So. We're very excited about the projects. Uh, we've been meeting already with the Arizona courts to get the, the pre-change data, um, which we're working on. And um, so we don't unfortunately have results to report yet. It's actually probably gonna be a while to, um, for us to be able to make the pre and post comparison, but we're very excited to hopefully provide um, some answers to, to these questions um, and about whether the peremptory challenge rule change actually has the impact that
1: was intended.
0: Professor Beattie, would you like to do you have any comments on that?
1: I obviously second everything that Professor Salerno has said. She has been the one leading this project, and I've been delighted to be part of it from the law school and with the Academy for Justice. It really is powerful to have a broad spectrum of academics with uh, different deep backgrounds and uh, experiences uh, to be able to try to tackle this right now and really capture what's going to be going on. As has been pointed out, Arizona is the first state to do this. Uh, and the fact that the courts have been uh, very willing to uh, work with data analysts and with academics to track what happens in this coming year uh, in the implementation of this is really powerful and encouraging and that also means again this is untested we don't know what the results will be. We know what we hope the results will be, which is more diverse juries. We don't know. And so to be able to collect this data in the first year and turn around and give some feedback, I think can really hopefully help guide the process both in Arizona and perhaps
0: nationally. Well, that provides some terrific background on uh, from three academics who have been uh, very active not only in the scholarly debate, Uh, but also in the policy reform world. And so I'd like to think about the potential arguments that might be made in favor of retaining peremptory challenges and uh, actually the arguments that were made by academics. And for that, I'd like to read a couple of quotes from a a 1975 law review article by uh, Stanford law professor uh, Barbara Babcock who offered the case for uh, retaining peremptory challenges. Uh, Let me give you a couple of key quotes from that piece. Here's the first one, quote, the peremptory challenge serves functions that the challenge for cause could never fill. The first of these is didactic. The peremptory challenge teaches the litigant and through him the community, that the jury is a good and proper mode for deciding matters and that its decision should be followed because in a real sense, the jury belongs to the litigant. He chooses it. Without giving any reason or meeting any legal test, he may dismiss from his jury those he fears or hates the most so that he is left with, to quote Blackstone, a good opinion of the jury. He should be tried by any one man against whom he has conceived a prejudice even without being able to assign a reason for such dislike, unquote. Uh, The ideal that the peremptory serves is that the jury not only should be fair and impartial, but should seem to be so to those whose fortunes are at issue. The appearance of impartiality is an essential manifestation of its reality. Okay, there's the first quote. Let me give you a second one. Quote, the peremptory made without giving any reason, avoids trafficking in the core of truth in most common stereotypes. Common human experience, common sense, psychosociological studies, and public opinion polls tell us that it is likely that certain classes of people statistically have predispositions that would make them inappropriate jurors for particular kinds of cases. But to allow this knowledge to be expressed in the evaluative terms necessary for challenges for cause, would undercut our desire for a society in which all people are judged as individuals and in which each is held reasonable and open to compromise. Instead, we have evolved in the peremptory challenge, a system that allows the covert expression of what we dare not say, but know is true more often than not," unquote. What do you think about these arguments? Do they have merit or have things changed so drastically over the past half century um, that uh, these ideas need to be uh, rethought. Let me start with a- any one of you, but but perhaps uh, Professor Beatty.
1: Sure. Uh, so I-, I can anticipate that my <laughs> colleagues may say this as well, but the research has shown that, I mean, this is a fail. Uh, even if we look at, again, the trials that are going on right now, the Ahmed Aubrey trial, for example, uh, it doesn't even look impartial. It doesn't even have the... Um, appearance of impartiality to the extent that the judge is recognizing that as well. So I think uh, the the research, the extensive research that has been conducted really shows how much we've learned since uh, this was uh, penned in 1975. That said, um, I do think it's important to look at if um, if we don't have peremptory challenges and we have to have a reason for each strike, How do we get at whether jurors are going to be biased in a certain way? Uh, So we really do need to provide for attorneys the capacity to expand what's called voir dire, so the the questioning of the jury pool. Uh, So that needs to to be permitted so that if a juror can only be struck for a reason, um, attorneys and likewise the clients that are pointed out in these quotes uh, can really get at the, um, as it says, kind of the core uh, beliefs of the different jurors. Uh, and then finally, I just say, there are other ways to address what I'm about to say, but uh, I'm writing this book. It's coming out next year called Manifesting Justice. And it's about two of my clients uh, in Mississippi who are wrongfully convicted of a crime because they are lesbians. And the defense attorney asked the jury, jurors not having heard any evidence in this case, would you find my client guilty because of her sexual orientation? And there were two jurors who raised their hands and said, yes, the trial hasn't even started. I haven't heard any evidence, but I would find your client guilty because of their sexual orientation. And the judge jumped in and said, that's a completely inappropriate question. You're trying to confuse the jurors. What are you doing going off track in this area? Uh, Don't do that again. So the the judge shut down that questioning. Now, those two jurors were removed through peremptory challenges. If they had instead, uh, if the attorney had tried to remove them through a vocalized challenge, saying, I think they have uh, bias against my client based on her sexual orientation, I don't know that the judge would have granted it, given the the predisposition of what the judge had already said. Now, again, there are other ways to address that concern, but that is one instance where the Fremtree challenge was very important.
0: Thank you, Professor Beattie. Professor Hogue, uh, do you have uh, have thoughts on that?
3: I have so many thoughts. Um, I'm, I'm not usually one to disagree uh, with the great late um, Barbara Babcock, but but here I do. Um, and I, I recognize that it's not just prosecutors uh, that want to be able to use preemptory strikes, but really it's defense counsel. And when I talk to to my peers and, and when I do uh, CLE trainings, preemptory challenges, preemptory strikes, it's a very powerful tool for defense attorneys as well. They often want to get rid of jurors who have an allegiance with law enforcement. So maybe they have family members who are law enforcement or maybe we're in military. There's an an idea uh, that people that have that kind of history or proximity are perhaps more prosecution friendly. Um, And so defense attorneys really, really don't want to lose preemptory strikes either. And I know Professor Babcock started her career at the Public Defender Service and was the first um, director there in in D.C. So it doesn't surprise me that she's defending uh, preemptories. But I think many of the same arguments she's raising, you know, lawyers can use strikes for cause to remove problematic jurors and to ensure that the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to a impartial jury is, is upheld. And as Professor Beattie already alluded, uh, it requires defense attorneys to engage in much more penetrating voir dire. And that also requires judges to allow attorneys to question prospective juries. And this is not actually the case in every courtroom across this country. I have read, um, as an appellate attorney, I was mostly doing Appeals after the the client had already been convicted and usually sentenced to death uh, for my clients. And so I was reading these dry transcripts and it really varied uh, how much a judge actually allowed the individual attorneys to conduct questioning. And one of the cases I'm still working on in appeal was tried in federal court and it was a, a cross racial crime. So it was a black uh, defendant, white victim, uh, a largely white skewed conservative, uh, politically conservative jurisdiction. And the, the jury was disproportionately white, the jury pool. And the trial counsel sensing that there might be uh, the potential for racial bias. The voir dire, uh, the questioning that she asked was, does anyone on the jury have any black friends? And again, this is a dry transcript. So hands were raised, no follow up questions. Does anyone have any uh, Black coworkers? Hands raised, no fault questions. And that was the extent of defense counsel's inquiry into uh, potential racial bias. I mean, it was really uh, just a, a kind of uh, unknowing um, way to to sort of uh, ferret out potential bias. And so I think what what needs to happen if if preemptories are permanently off the table, not just in Arizona, but everywhere, um, as, as I would advocate for, we really need to, one, uh, allow trial attorneys to engage in, in searching, penetrating voir dire. And then, um, two, make sure lawyers know how to get at potential bias. And I know we've been speaking mostly about race, uh, but this is true um, for sexual orientation, it's true for gender, uh, many other markers of identity, but we really have to train lawyers to um, to know how to, to ask these questions and to ferret out, root out, smoke out uh, this kind of bias.
0: Great, great responses. Let me ask a kind of a follow-up to that. There is an argument, no doubt, that the elimination of peremptory challenges is necessary to end intentional discrimination even if it's not voiced, uh, an intent to discriminate against uh, people of uh, particular particular classes um, that are protected under the Constitution. Should the rules also be aimed at eliminating unintentional or implicit bias, sometimes called unconscious bias? Is that an appropriate role for for a, uh, a rule to be playing? And if it is, what are the dangers that uh, that lie in uh, unintentional or implicit or unconscious bias that may affect uh, the decisions made in seating a jury?
4: Yeah, well, I had kind of a quick response to the last question. It's a little outside my expertise, but... Um... <laughs> So my reaction to those quotes is coming from a purely uh, social psychology perspective as I am not, I don't have a law degree and, um, and coming from a psychologist that I think those quotes are really interesting because it makes sense to me that the litigant would want peremptory challenges because, you know, generally speaking, people believe that the process is much more fair if they have voice and feelings of control in the process. And I think that's a big part of the the allure of peremptory challenges is that even if you can't prove something, you know, you still have a little bit of control and can can strike people that you think are bad for your case. It's kind of interesting as a social psychologist because I'm, you know, I, I understand that impulse, but I also am highly skeptical that these people are actually able to effectively judge. Um, I think if what's kind of interesting about this argument is that if they can't come up with a reason for cause. Probably, what's driving their desire to strike a juror is either something they're not allowed to strike on, such as race, or it's sort of a hunch. They don't have a good reason for it, but it's a hunch. And, and as a social psychologist, I think data generally speak to people are not really as good a judge of other people's attitudes and behavior as they think they are. And I think that since those quotes um, were given, you know, it's it's uh, it's become very obvious that we need to address racial discrimination. And I think. It's unreasonable from a psychological point of view to think that attorneys are able and willing to avoid the impact of race if we ha- if we give them the leeway to do so via peremptory challenges. So that's sort of the psychology perspective on that.
1: So in terms of addressing or trying to address unconscious bias, uh, you know that's one reason why states like Washington have adopted an objective observer test. Would someone else, an objective observer, believe that this strike was racially motivated? Uh, And that provides a a little bit of distance for uh, realizing that although the individual may not see their action as racially biased, uh, that there may be something bigger going on and and providing that objective observer uh, test provides space for acknowledging that. Uh, and the other thing is that, as Professor Hog pointed out, it can be a heavy lift under traditional Batson to accuse someone of being racist. Uh, and that's particularly true in rural communities where you have small courts, you have repeat players. It can be the same prosecutors and defense attorneys and judges again and again. Uh, so it really can be a heavy lift of saying, I think you're uh, acting in a racially biased way. By instead including unconscious bias as well as conscious bias, I think that it does provide some cover where the the person who is bringing the the charge can say, "You know what, Jim, I, you know, I, I don't I don't know that you're actually being racially biased, but it does appear that way, and maybe something unconscious is going on here. And why don't we look more deeply at that?" So I think it does provide some type of cover, particularly in those communities where, the the court and the players of the court are so limited and it's the same people again and again.
4: So I think one thing that's interesting about Arizona's decision to ban peremptory challenges altogether, I think in part helps address the implicit bias. I mean psychological science on implicit bias is that it's a it's a thing. it's a real thing that's operating out there, but it's notoriously difficult to change. And oftentimes people, um, not just in the legal system, but, you know, everywhere in the workplace, um, everywhere tend to try to slap on band-aids. They show a short video or they do a quick implicit bias training and hope that that takes care of it. And the data are showing so far that those kind of quick fixes are not very effective. What you really need to do is you need big structural changes. You need more diverse juries. You need, um, for example, here, what the ban is, is basically doing is it's taking the discretion away from the attorney. So rather than trusting or expecting attorneys to be able to control their unconscious biases which is an incredibly tall order even for the most well-intentioned attorney to be able to do that people it's really hard for people to do that so the ban is interesting because it's kind of a structural change that rather than trusting attorneys to figure out a way to control their own implicit bias it's it's making a structural change to try and prevent the impact of their uh, implicit biases um you sort of tainting their their decisions, where at least with challenges for cause, they have to come up with some sort of argument and a judge has to accept it. So I think, you know, that's part of what the peremptory ban is trying to do is specifically to also capture those implicit um, processes as opposed to just the explicit. I think the issue with implicit bias Really speaks to
3: why Batson hasn't been as effective. And this is true sort of across the board and other parts of our legal system. Um, you don't always get smoking gun evidence. Uh, a prosecutor is not always going to use, you know, the N word before deciding to try and remove a, a black juror or, or some other sort of explicit, explicit bias. And I think getting rid of sort of the power of preemptory strikes, um, which then takes away the opportunity for a prosecutor to come up with some race neutral reason that, that doesn't even have to be necessarily plausible, just facially valid, allows, allows us, allows the legal system to really get at, at the root of, of bias. And, and racial bias often manifests in in more subtle, nuanced ways. Um, lots of social science research in this area, but I'm I'm hopeful that with with Arizona's reform and, and the subsequent research, I'm I'm thrilled to hear about it, that other states will will start to, to follow suit.
0: Terrific, thank you. Let me ask one final question. What should we see as a result of the new rule or the changed rule by the uh, Arizona Supreme Court? What will be the practical impact? Will it be a loud change? Will it be a silent revolution? Will it be full incorporation by the criminal justice system uh, as it moves forward uh, dealing with more and more cases? Or instead, is there a possibility that the problems that we've seen in peremptory challenges will simply migrate over into a more robust uh, understanding of four cause challenges?
4: Well, I'm a bit biased because we are just launching this huge study, but I hope that before any, you know, before big, huge, sweeping changes, we get a chance to look at some data. I think what's really interesting about this is that you know, a peremptory ban has been talked about for decades. It has a lot of potential. Um, But as you noted, Eric, I think there is a big question here about whether this is really going to have the net impact that it's meant for, or if it's really just going to change how voir dire happens with attorneys shifting their attention to trying to argue and exclude um, Black jurors for cause more than white jurors for cause and the degree to which judges accept that or not. It's kind of a big open question right now about whether we end up with the same result. It's just through a lot longer and effortful path because they have to argue challenges for cause um, or if this actually results in the changes that we're hoping for, um, which I think is uh, yeah, definitely a big open question. So as you know, as a scientist, I'm always sort of hesitant. I hope that we were able to, to get data and answer that question before everybody makes huge sweeping change that I know a lot of attorneys are very much opposed to for the reasons that we pointed out before.
0: Thank you. Any other thoughts? That brings us to the end of our time today. We want to thank our guests for a terrific discussion. Professor Valina Beattie, Deputy Director of the Academy for Justice at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Professor Jessica Salerno of the New College of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at Arizona State University, and Professor Alexis Ho of the Brooklyn Law School in New York City. Thanks also to my co-host, Ashley Otto, and our producer, Amina Ketchin-Kamal. This podcast is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice.